following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. I'm excited as you came in, you saw some things around the church, and even uh, as you came in around uh, the screen this morning, uh, this idea of thrive. Uh, This word thrive is a word that uh, is an incredibly pregnant word. It's one that can be nuanced in so many different ways. But really what we are saying is we're saying this year in our ministry year that we want to highlight this theme, that we want to say what does it look like in a relationship with Jesus Christ to thrive? What does it mean as we come into relationship with him? Uh, What does it it mean for us as, as a person? So you'll see us say that we want to see you thrive as a person. What does it mean to thrive as a family within your marriage, within your family unit, within those relationships? What does it look like to thrive in that? What does it look like for us to thrive as a church, for Hilton Head Presbyterian Church to thrive? What does that mean? Uh, What does that look like for us? And what does it mean for us to thrive as a community here placed by God in Hilton Head, in the Low Country, in Bluffton, uh, to minister, minister to the community around us. So throughout the year, you're going to hear of this and see this imagery. You'll notice that uh, the imagery is one of growth, and it's on a, a tree uh, there of looking at the rings along the trunk of a tree. And what that means is there are some years that may be more thriving than other years, and some years that are a little thinner uh, in that. Maybe some seasons of drought, maybe some seasons of true flourishing, but all along growing and maturing uh, and picking up on that imagery from even Psalm 1 that says relationship with God in Christ is like a tree that is firmly planted by streams of living water that bears its fruit in its season and its leaf never withers. That that's what we want to see in our lives. So you're going to hear us talking about it a lot. You're going to see it around uh, the campus here and on different things of print. We're going to have, and we would love for you all to engage with it, uh, to, uh, to send us your thoughts, be it from Instagram or in Facebook or on the website or e- emails. Just respond to show uh, how God is moving in your life, that you're thriving, to show some of that that we can share together. I know that's a challenge. We tried this before and got like two responses. So uh, we're looking for some multiplying on that, uh, uh, the creative team is. Uh, if you know what a hashtag is, we're hashtagging it with HHPC Thrive. If you don't know what a hashtag is, talk to somebody with more hair and less gray uh, than you, and they'll tell you. It just is one way for us to kind of identify that you can click on that, and it'll show you and bring you some things from folks in our church uh, on that. We realize that this isn't going to a bumper sticker or a t-shirt or anything. It not going to lead anybody to Christ. I, I'm not silly enough to think that. But we do want it to be a theme within our church, a thought for us to consider, to ask these questions. Am I thriving? Am I personally thriving in my own heart and life? Is my family thriving? Or are we just getting by? Is this church, it's growing, but is it thriving? Big doesn't mean thriving, by the way. Big just means big. Health and thriving means thriving, not just big And in our community, would this church be missed if we closed our doors? Would anybody know that Hilton Head Presbyterian Church didn't exist anymore if we went away? Or are we such an integral part of the fabric of our communities that we help those communities thrive to live the life that God had designed for them to live? The creative team has come together and just done some great stuff. 
Uh, you may have already seen it on the hallway there. There's an interactive art uh, that you can go, and there's little cards that you can write, uh, either a statement of, I'm thriving in this, or a prayer, I want to thrive in this way, and then just push pin uh, that in, and we hope over the course of the year that that fills out uh, and sees. Parents, I'd ask you that, um, you know, Kids don't necessarily say, I want to thrive as R2-D2 or something like that. It doesn't get filled up with all the silly. But that we do want even our kids to engage with where they want to grow and thrive in that. Well, this morning, we're going to look at what does it mean to thrive as a person? What does it mean for us as Christians? What does the gospel have to say within our own personal lives uh, to the idea of thriving? And we're going to look at Jesus' words in John chapter 10 as he speaks of himself as the good shepherd, as the gate, uh, as the one who brings us abundant life. So now let us ask God's blessing on the reading and hearing of his word. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We pray that you would now speak to us, teach us. Would we hear your voice? Would we understand things more deeply and completely? Would we be willing uh, to turn away from some things? And listen to you and not to the voice of strangers. Speak now for your people. Listen. Amen. This is the very word of God. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, and they know his voice. A stranger they will not know, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. And Jesus said again, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves and the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the father knows me, I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold, speaking of the Gentiles. I must bring them in also that they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. There was, given, there was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? This is the word of the Lord. May he add his blessing to the reading and hearing of it. Amen. Thriving. Jesus said in this passage, I came to give you life and that life 
abundantly. He's talking to his people. He's talking to Christians there uh, about his people, that that's what a relationship with Christ looks like. But he's having this conversation in the midst of a confrontation. He's He's confronting the religious leaders of the day called the Pharisees, who are opposed not only to his message, but they're opposed to him uh, as an individual and as a man. And he is coming out, there's there's, uh, this chapter 10, one thing that you'll notice about chapter 10, 10, it comes right on the heels of chapter 9. And so it's good to know what happened in chapter 9 that helps you lead up to the context of chapter 10. And what you know, I'm sure, is that Jesus in chapter 9 came and met a man who was blind from birth. The man came to Jesus and Jesus spit on the ground and he made mud and he took the mud and he put it on the man's eyes and he said, now go to the pool of Siloam and go there and wash and you'll be healed. And the man went and he could see it was a miracle. It was the man being restored to sight and he'd never had sight. And the man went and he told his parents and his friends and they were amazed as you would be. Uh, They didn't even recognize him. They said, who is this guy? They're like, oh my goodness, it's our son, it's our friend, he can see. And so they sent him to the Pharisees to go and to make knowledge of this. And the Pharisees began to question him. They said, who did this to you? And he said, Jesus of Nazareth. They said, he healed you on the Sabbath, he broke the Sabbath laws in order to heal you. And they rebuked him. And his parents were so afraid of the Pharisees that they made him answer the Pharisees because they knew that if they associated themselves with this Jesus of Nazareth, that they would be excommunicated from the church. They would be kicked out from the synagogue that was there. And so the man stood and he aligned himself with Christ. And it says that he was expelled from the synagogue. He was thrown out. And so Jesus goes and he finds the man. And he talks to the man. And then Jesus goes and finds the Pharisees, and he wants to have a little conversation with them. You see, truth always confronts non-truth. You can say, well, I'm just a peaceful person. I'm not a confrontational person. Folks, if you believe in truth, you will always have a confrontation when you come up against non-truth. How you have a confrontation is totally up to you. But Jesus was one of the most incredible confrontational people because he was going to take on non-truth. He was going to take on falsehood. And here, that's the context in which he's talking. And he's talking to these Pharisees. And he's talking to them uh, about his mission and his purpose and what it looks like to have relationship with him. The other day, we were thinking about going to a restaurant. And so, as any good modern person does, I went to TripAdvisor to decide whether a restaurant was worth its weight and, and would be good for us to go. We were going to take some friends And I knew that a friend of mine who I trust, I trust his palate, I trust his understanding of restaurants and of all of those things, uh, I trusted that the review that he put there would be one that I could look at and go, all right, if he liked it, that's probably pretty good. And I went to the restaurant and I looked it up and I'd have to admit there were several good uh, reviews of the restaurant. But then I got to my friends and I looked at it and it said something to this, not perfect, but a paraphrase, nice restaurant. But overall, my experience and the dining experience was best described as meh, M-E-H, meh. Wow, there's a stellar review. Put five stars next to that one. So I looked and I thought, I trust this guy. I'm not going to go to that restaurant. And we didn't. But then I got thinking, what if folks in our community in our culture, in our world. Maybe they logged into spiritualadvisor.com 
and they typed in in the search Christianity. And they wanted to read some of the reviews of Christianity by those who had gone and had tasted and were those who admitted publicly that they were followers of Christ. I wonder what they would read in the reviews there. I wonder what they would read in your review. I wonder how you would describe a relationship with Jesus Christ. I imagine that far too many reviews would be like my friend's review of the restaurant. Eh. I mean, I love Jesus, but eh. I mean, we're doing okay, but eh. meh. What a horrible description. But it's one that I think and I know that I see in so many lives of many of you, friends that I've known around the country and folks that I've been engaged with over the years of being in the church. If someone asks you how are you doing? How are you going to respond? You're probably going to fumble around for words because you haven't really thought about it deeply. And so you may be using words like, well, I'm okay. I'm all right. I'm good. I mean, I'm stressed out. I'm good. I'm, I'm okay. I rarely, when I ask people that, I rarely, if ever, hear words like this, I'm doing awesome. It's great to be alive today. I mean, when's the last time you heard somebody say that? Hey, how are you doing today? Awesome! Man, isn't it good to be alive today? I mean, I get to breathe. I get to go about life. I'm married. I have kids. This is great stuff. Most of the time you get, so how are you? Eh. Come see, come saw. I see, I see. So, so. Fair to Midland. We think about it. We're not flourishing. We're not thriving. Think about how you describe your family, your marriage. Someone comes to you and goes, what's it like to be married? Somebody just told me today that they've been married 40 years today. Dave and Ann Lively, congratulations. Ann, congratulations. So, how do you describe marriage? It's all right. Good days and bad days. I don't know. I mean... We, I mean, we tolerate each other pretty well. I mean, we're not fighting all the time. You know, it's kind of like a roommate on her way to heaven. You know, she takes the clicker all the time and has it too hot. I want it too cold. I don't know. Meh. See, it all boils down to meh. Marriage, family, what's it like having kids? Meh. They're great when they're little, but then they're going to go up and break your heart. So, yeah, I mean, yeah. very rarely do you hear anybody in a marriage say, I'm so honored and humbled for the privilege of being able to live out in human form God's love for his people when he said that he married them and he was the bridegroom and I'm the bride. And I get the privilege of living that out day to day, that I have the honor of loving this one woman well for the rest of her life and one day to present her to God uh, in a way that she's more sanctified through her relationship with me than if with someone else. I don't ever hear that, do you? Do you even know what I'm talking about in that? You could apply this to any area of your life, family, work, school, friendships. But for most of us, we describe life in general. Maybe you're a little more eloquent than that. But in general, life is generally meh. Meh. Well, Jesus didn't come 
He didn't say in John 10, I'm the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. I voluntarily do this. I am going to confront my father and take on all of his justice and all of his anger towards sin. And I'm going to absorb that fully in myself and suffer the pains of hell for three days and then rise from the dead on the third day and ascend into heaven. And I'm going to give the people who believe in me and follow me, I'm going to give them a life best described as... Jesus didn't say that, did he? Then why in the world do we describe our lives that way? We should repent. Jesus said, I came to give you life, and that life abundantly, exceedingly good. I came abundantly means present in great quantity, more than adequate, over-sufficient, well-supplied, abounding thriving. Jesus said, that's the life I came to offer you. That's the life I came to give you and to assure for you. And so that's what we're going to look at today for ourselves in the few minutes that we have together. That what does it look like for us to thrive in Christ as an individual? And then by the way, if you've got two individuals who are thriving and they're married together, you have a marriage that begins to thrive. If you have individuals within a home that are beginning to thrive and seek a thriving in Christ, then you have a family where children are beginning to thrive and parents are thriving and the entire family unit begins to thrive. And then guess what happens when you bring all those people together in a collection called a church and you have these lives coming together, then a church begins to thrive. And then when a church begins to thrive, the scriptures say that where the righteous prosper, the city uh, is blessed that all of a sudden there's a place of blessing because this church is thriving, all because us as individuals begin to thrive and then thrive together and grow. Do you see where we're going with all of this? Your thriving or lack thereof affects the outer rings. It affects other things other than yourself. The first thing that we're going to learn about thriving, and I'm really just going to touch on these briefly, uh, is this, and I'm not going to spend much time on this one, but say thriving is available and it is attainable. For you. Thriving is available and it's attainable for you. It's not something that's out there uh, that you're shooting for but that you'll never get. Uh, it's not uh, that sense of saying, well, for me, I was, used to be, uh, I had a job and the, the review system was on a five scale, but they told me you'll never get a five. I was like, then why do you have a five? Because the biggest raise is hooked to the five. They said, well, no one ever gets a five. I was like, so five really, so it's a four-point scale. And I was like, well, no, you should never get a one because we'll fire you if you get a one. I said, so it's a two-point, a three-point scale. It's a two, three, and four. Yes, but it's very hard to get a four, so most likely you're going to get a three or a two that means need correction. Awesome. Woohoo! I didn't really enjoy that job because you can never gain what they promised that you could gain. Jesus isn't offering something you can never gain. This harkens back a little bit to what we talked about a few weeks ago with Psalm 1 when we talked about how blessed or happy is the man who walks with the Lord. We said that if happiness is promised by God, then that means it's also available by him. It is attainable. It isn't something that's just out there. That great quote by C.S. Lewis. The Christian says, Christians are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there's such a thing as water. Man feels sexual desire. Well, there is such a thing as sex. 
If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. If that is so, I must take care on the one hand never to despise or to be unthankful for these earthly blessings, and on the other never to mistake them for something else of which they are only a kind of copy or echo or mirage. I must keep alive, I must keep alive in myself the desire of my true country, which I shall not find until after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that country and help others see this, do the same thing. Lewis tapped into a truth that said that this promise of Christ to give abundant life is available and attainable to you. That's good news, by the way. That's good news. Second thing that we need to see, there's counterfeits to the biblical or the Christian thriving. There are counterfeits to this Christian thriving. Christ said, truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the doors, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own by name and leads them out. And when he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. Jesus speaks of thieves, he speaks of robbers, he speaks of strangers. He speaks of them, and he says this, they talk. They have a purpose, they have a plan, they have an agenda. And their agenda agenda is to ultimately destroy the sheep. It's to promise thriving, but at the end of the day, not be able to give it. That They promise these things, but yet they can't come through and follow through on those promises. So what that means for us is that we need to be aware of this. That we need to be cautious. That we need to be discerning. What a great word and a lost one in our culture today. To be discerning. To have a gift of discernment. To be able to listen and to know what is the exact message and what is it offering me and take that up and against what the scriptures say. You see, false thriving and the promise of false thriving looks an awful lot like religion. It's a lot of rules and a lot of obedience. It's a lot of man-centered and work-based life. And that's exactly what the Pharisees were offering and what uh, the Jewish system was offering in those days for they were saying, if you obey, if you do these things, then you're, you will thrive. If you're a good person, if you're religious, then you'll thrive. And Jesus said to them, he said in Matthew 23, seven, pronounced seven woes on the Pharisees. He said, woe to them, woe to them. For they are men who would say to Christ, you broke the Sabbath. How dare you break the Sabbath to heal a blind man? They missed what had happened. The blind man could see. And what they were most concerned about was rule-keeping. You see, they were consumed with behavior as a way to thriving. And what it ultimately led to was death and sadness. And what it ultimately continued to lead to was bondage and fear. Today, you hear echoes of this teaching in the prosperity gospel, which says that if you have enough faith, if you're a good enough person, if you give enough money to the church, if you do these things, then God will prosper you. And that if you're experiencing loss, if you're not prospering financially uh, in this world, then that means you're the problem. 
in the midst of it. Just do more and God will bless you. You hear it in the false gospel of the fundamentalist who preaches and says that if you obey, if you're just a good person, if you just stay a virgin until marriage, if you never get drunk, if you never dip and you never dance and you never date someone who does and all those kind of things, if you just do these things and don't do these other things, then God will bless you. And what you find at the end of the day is that that person is in bondage and in fear and in captivity, that they don't really know Christ at all. They know law. You hear it in our culture that says just be the best version of yourself. Just be the best you you can be and then you'll thrive. What do you feel like being today? Be whoever you feel like being. Follow your emotions. Follow that choice that you have to be whatever you want to be. Then you'll thrive. And anybody who stands in your way, oh, anybody, they're hate and filled with hate and they hate you. Or you hear it in the pulpits even, that say something like this. God helps those who... And that's found where? But preached regularly. By the way, I want to make sure you're clear on this. If you're new and you're exploring the faith, it's not in the Bible. Anywhere. You can't find that. But yet it is preached today that says God helps those who help themselves. Do you want to thrive? Get busy. Do you want to prosper? Get busy. It's up to you. You need to pull yourself up by the bootstraps. You need to have a better work ethic. You need to read your Bible more and you need to read it more often. And you need to do these things and you need to this and you need to that. But it's nowhere in the scriptures. You see, these are the words of imposters. And they do not lead to life. They lead to death. They lead you out into unprotected pastures. And guess what you find out in the unprotected pastures? You find out this. There is an enemy who wants to destroy you. There's an enemy who wants to lead you out away from Christ, lead you into a place that says, now I come to kill, to steal, and to destroy. That, my friends, is the only reason the imposters speak. They wouldn't say that. But Christ says there, you're being used by the evil one. And it says this, if you believe this false prosperity, if you believe this false thriving, you are open to utter destruction. So be aware. And be cautious that there are counterfeits, but there also is a true source. There's a true source. And here's what the true source of thriving is. It's really simple. It's Jesus Christ and Him alone. Jesus said within this, if you want to thrive, if you want the abundance of this life that I promise you, then you have to come to me. And you have to come to me on my terms. You have to come to me through my door, through my gate. You don't get to crawl over fences. You don't get to crawl uh, around them. You don't get to sneak in through another door. There's only one door. And that door to this life, this awesome, incredible life that you want to experience, a life that sings, a life that brings you alive, a, a life that you begin to describe and then find yourself at a loss for words. To go, I don't know, I, I'm experiencing difficulty, I'm experiencing trouble, all of these things. But deep down inside, there's a... There's a something that's only found in Christ and through Christ. Christ said, I am the good shepherd. I am the door. He is saying that he is the only way to safety and pasture. That's his words. Folks, never apologize for the exclusive claims of Jesus Christ. He doesn't need you to defend himself. He needs you to be honest and to say it is actually most loving 
for us to say to a world, don't listen to that other person. Don't listen to that other path. There's only one true path. There's only one door. There's only one gate. And it's not that you're hoping to be a good enough person. My job takes me to sit next to deathbeds every now and then. And I've sat next to too many of them with a person saying, well, I just hope that what I've done good outweighs what I've done bad when I get to meet God. It never will. It has to be through Christ. And it's loving to say that. To say to come to him. Jesus is saying and he reiterates that thriving is possible for the Christian, but only through him. No other way, no shortcuts. So again, the true source of thriving is in Christ alone. And we gain that abundance in this life. We gain that pasture. We gain that thriving through the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. All of a sudden, in the middle of this, he throws in one of the most incredible, paramount theological truths that you will ever be able to study. And I'm only going to be able to touch on it, but you need to understand this. He says, the only way to come to me, the only way to experience this life is through my substitutionary death. That I had to take your place. You can't do it on your own. He says, the shepherd, I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. Everyone else runs off when threatened. I won't. For this reason, the father loves me, verse 17, because I lay down my life that I might take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord and I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up. This charge I've received from my father. Jesus laid down his life for you and for me that we might find our life in him. Religion at its very heart says that man is substituting himself for God. Christianity says at its very heart that God is substituting himself for man. That Jesus Christ voluntarily gave his life for you. Isn't that amazing? Sort of. Meh. I think that's pretty dadgum cool because you know what I know about Bill McCutcheon? I know a lot more than you know. And I know this, that this passage of scripture says to me, Jesus knows me inside and out, up and down, top to bottom. And he still volunteered his life for mine. If I don't feel overwhelmed by that and move to emotion, my heart is dead. To recognize that Jesus Christ voluntarily laid down his life to absorb the utter wrath and destruction of his father that was meant for us. And he took it voluntarily and joyfully for us. Oh, if that doesn't make your heart begin to come alive, folks, you have a problem. That's how much this Jesus loves you. That's how much the good shepherd loves you. Everybody else is going to leave you. Everything else will leave you. When they say that you will thrive as long as you look good, as long as you're young, guess what? Hate to break it to you. You're getting older. You're sagging a little bit and you're wrinkling. And then all of a sudden, that same lover who said, hey, you'll thrive as long as you look good. And all of a sudden, you don't look so good. That lover says, I don't need you anymore. And they say, hey, as long as you make this much money, you're going to thrive. And as long as you live in this place, and as long as you do these things, and you add some value to our economy and some value to our, our culture, then you're going to thrive. And all of a sudden, you're incapacitated and you can't. You go bankrupt and you've lost it all. Guess what? That one runs away too. And a lover who says to you, I was talking to a young woman one time, she was dating a man 
who wrote her literally 16 things he loved about her. I love your long black hair. I love your white teeth. I love your beautiful complexion. And she looked at him and she said, well, when I get breast cancer and my hair falls out and the chemo ruins my teeth and I have to have a double mastectomy and I don't have much left for you and I may not be able to bear you children, are you still going to love me? And he paused and she left. And she married me. That's Lisa's story. Every other lover will leave you. Except the one who knows you. And said, I've known you. I've always known you. And yet I'm still going to give my life for you. No other shepherd will do that. No other door. No other gate. Nothing else in this world will. Except Christ Jesus. Folks, that's the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the good news. And it should overwhelm us. No other religion gives that to us. And we experience that by grace and faith in Christ. That we believe it. That it's given to you to believe. Does that move your heart at all? Does that stir you at a deep level? And then Jesus says this. We also begin to experience that thriving not only by belief in his voluntary death. But by listening and obeying. Notice that it comes behind the voluntary death. We believe in him that we're given his, his life for ours, and now we obey. We don't obey in order to get that, but we obey. He says, my sheep hear my voice, and they listen to me. For some of you, you heard that first part, and you were like, this is awesome. I get it all free that Jesus died for me, and now I can do whatever the heck I want to do. Folks, if knowing that he has secured your life leads you to think that there is now no impetus, no drive for morality or for obedience then the only incentive you ever had was fear and self-interest. Because it's Jesus' unbelievable love that leads us to want to listen to his voice. Why would I listen to anybody else's voice? They don't love me that way. They don't know me that way. They haven't been willing to die for me. I'm going to listen to his voice. And when his voice says, hey, McCutcheon, you need to do this, guess what I'm going to say? Okay. I may not like it all the time, and I may not be perfect in my obedience, but at least I'm going to listen and I'm going to obey. I'm going to walk with him and follow him in and out of pasture. It's regular and it's systematic and it's listening to God's voice. Our actions and our obedience matter. If you're not thriving, maybe it's because you're rejecting his voice in your life. Maybe you're rejecting his offer. And then we'll end here. What does thriving look like? And I'm just going to read them to you. What does it look like? It looks like peace. It looks like shalom. It looks like green pastures beside still water. It looks like rest. Now that rest is not without difficulty. In between services, I just prayed for someone who just heard this week that her cancer has returned after six weeks, or six years. They're devastated. But she had a smile and something in her eyes that said, it's going to be okay. Even if it's not okay, it's going to be okay because I know Christ. There is a peace. There is a green pasture even in the middle of deserts. There's a security that comes. This isn't absence of danger. There are still wolves and there are lions and there are threats. But there is a security that comes in this knowledge. Look at verses 27 and 28 real quickly. My sheep hear my voice and I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Folks, you can be safe and secure that nothing can take you from the Lord's hands. You're safe in him. 
There's a confidence then that comes from that. That means you can live, you can put your shoulders back a little bit, and you can walk out confidently into your day. What's the day tomorrow? It's Monday, right? I haven't been there yet, but you know who has? Christ is already in tomorrow. He's already there. And he's my shepherd who laid down his life for me. So I have a confidence that whatever I engage on Monday, it's from him. And I'll be okay in the middle of it. He never leaves or forsakes me. There's an intimacy that I'm known. We could talk about this one a lot. For some of you, you bear shame, guilt. You're known. It says that I know you so well, I know your name. He calls you by name. Isn't that awesome? In a world of, hey, how are you? Hey, fella. Hey, there you. <laughs> you know, we don't know names. Jesus knows your name. He knows you intimately, inside and out. And your heart begins to come alive. That's what thriving's like. Sound pretty good? It doesn't mean dishonest. It does sound great. It doesn't mean be dishonest. So when someone says, so what's it like following Christ? You can say, hey, life's tough at times, but I know this much. I know my shepherd, and I know he knows me. It means honesty, but it means always coming back to this truth. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your message of hope for us today. Thank you for all that you've given us in Christ, our good shepherd. I pray for many who are here today who aren't thriving at all. This is a concept to, to them and not a reality. I pray, though, that deep down that desire that they have would be fulfilled and that they would come to you maybe for the first time today, that they would set aside their religion, they would set aside to themselves, and they would look to the Good Shepherd and they would find him and be found by him. Father, for others who are struggling, they believe and they want to believe more. I pray that you infuse into them a deeper understanding and a deeper reality of your spirit. And for others who are thriving, Father, would they be a light upon a hill? Would they be a truth and a place for many to come and to see the good news of Christ? Father, we praise you, our good shepherd, and we thank you that you are all that we have, that my life is in Christ, and we sing to your glory. Amen. Let's stand and sing this great song of our faith.